Great news for Informed Pregnancy Plus subscribers. Dive into our Core Connection course included with your subscription. Hosted by Natalie Headings, a pre- and postnatal exercise specialist and ACSM certified personal trainer, she's an incredible teacher. This five-video series equips you with essential insights to understand what your pelvic floor and core are, how they work, and how to enhance pelvic floor and core strength and proper function during and after your pregnancy and birth. Learn about pelvic floor basics, key postural adjustments, effective muscle releases, and breathing techniques for a healthier core and floor. Don't wait. Visit informedpregnancy.tv and get started with the invaluable core connection today. Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin. Nothing scared me more than when we came home with our first newborn baby. And I've talked about a bunch of different things and how badly I messed up as a, a newborn dad. One of them is I thought I was doing a good thing, which is my wife was uh, feeding a lot during the night and she would fall asleep in the morning and the baby would be all well-fed and bright-eyed so I took him in the stroller one morning and I went for a walk through the park which was very close to our house and as I was walking through the park everybody was like oh wow what a sweet little baby sweet little baby and I didn't strap him in because like he couldn't move anywhere it's not like he was gonna go anywhere and uh with such a nice park walk in the park I was so proud and I was all the fresh air and I was like I did a good thing for my wife I'm such a great guy and then I get home, and we have three steps to get in to our apartment door. And I had never contemplated how you would take a stroller up those three steps. And for some reason, early in the morning, my first thought was to push down on the handle so the front wheels would go up on the first step. That's kind of silly, because then where do you go after that? You can't push down on anything anymore. And eventually, I realized you go backwards, and you pull it up backwards. But... Not before I pushed down on those handles and the whole stroller tilted back and my not strapped in newborn rolled out of the stroller, rolled between my legs <laughs> and started to roll down our front drive. He was crying hysterically. I ran to get him. I picked him up. I inspected quickly. I used to work in ambulances and emergency rooms, so pretty good at assessment and um, no blood, no cuts or scratches or anything. Um, I calmed him down, I shushed him down, and I said, look, forever, this is between you and me, don't you ever tell your mother about this, and that's how I became a, a newborn dad. So, I also remember, after he came out, that uh, I sort of was waiting, I, you know, we waited, and the placenta came out next, and I kind of was waiting for an owner's manual and a 30-day money-back guarantee, none of which came out. So my point in all of this is today's episode is for those of you who are either expecting or have a newborn in the house and may feel a little nervous or anxious about how to get your home ready for a newborn 
or what some of the different things that happen are, or you're doing a good job, not doing a good job. They don't tell you necessarily, not in the way you're used to being talked to anyway. And then other pediatric things that come up, like jaundice and bilirubin, you might've heard the terms, but don't necessarily know what they mean and how they might affect your child. And fever, which is pretty common in the first year. What does it mean? What's the best way to assess a fever? How do you know if it's something mild that you can deal with at home? And if so, how do you deal with it at home? Or something that requires a visit to the doctor. My guest today is a pediatrician and he's practicing in Santa Monica, California. He completed his residency at UCLA. And we've recently spoke to his wife, Dr. Michelle Sai, who is an OBGYN. And he's gonna help us get ready and feel confident in our newborn parenting. Dr. Princeton Lee, welcome to the podcast. Hi, so glad to be here. Um, you have such a calming demeanor. I think that's probably really good for new parents. <laughs> it's a uh, learned skill for sure. But, uh, you know, newborn parenting is such an interesting part of pediatrics that I really, really love to talk about. So I'm, I'm really glad to be here to help. Did you guys meet in medical school? Yes. So I met my wife, Michelle, um, when she was actually a resident um, at the University of Hawaii and I was in medical school. So I rotated with her, had a chance to deliver some babies with her. So, you know, kind of a relationship trial by fire. And then (laughs) (laughs) after the uh, rotation ended, I asked her out and uh, the rest is history, I guess. Yeah. And you're about to deliver a baby together once again. (laughs) Only this time it's yours. Yes, yes. And I think we are going to try to have as much help as possible. (laughs) Yes, for sure. So you did that OB rotation together, but then you went off and became a pediatrician. What uh, inspired that? Yeah, so pediatrics and, you know, seeing kids is such a fun specialty. I couldn't imagine doing anything else and being woken up in the middle of the night for anything else. I feel like I really can empathize with kids. I like the things that kids like for better or for worse. And I, you know, I remember what it's like to be that age or to be in the shoes of the parents trying to deal with behavior or deal with illness or even dealing with health at that age. So I think it's just a really interesting, fascinating area of medicine where every three or four years, everything changes, right? From a baby to a toddler to someone who's elementary school age, preteen, I just think it's a really, really interesting and fascinating field of medicine. It must be really cool to watch those little babies grow up into people. And I'll watch my little babies grow up into people. My oldest just took his driving test and passed, unfortunately. And uh, (laughs) on the way home, I was like, let's stop by Costco and see if they sell Zoloft, because I think I'm going to need a lot of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, (laughs) They don't, by the way. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's fascinating, you know, watching kids evolve. And in the newborn or the first couple months even, I'm sure you experienced this, you know, the difference between a baby at two days versus two weeks versus two months is like night and day, and you feel like you're dealing with a completely different baby, so. Yeah, we do uh, pediatric chiropractic in the office, so I see it more in other people's kids than my kids, because for me, you know, I see them every day, so I just see that little tiny bit of growth, and I don't see the big change. But I'll see my patients' kids maybe four times a year, you know, from the baby age. And uh, every three months, it's just mind-blowing that it's the same kid. And they're so much bigger, so much more mature, so developed. And now we're at the point where I have kids, you know, that are teenagers, you know, 16 years old. 
and I worked with their moms and when they were uh, in the womb. And it's kind of unbelievable that conceivably in the next several years, they might start having kids of their own. And I'll feel even older than I feel right now. <laughs> you look good for all those listeners out there. It's <laughs> <looks> good. <laughs> Thank you very much. You know, my colleague, Dr. Wu, who was an OBGYN over here, unfortunately recently passed away, but he was in his 80s and he was still practicing. And he said that he, he delivered around 20,000 babies. Wow. 500 breach. Oh my gosh. You know, because back in the day, yeah. they just delivered breach and he never stopped. But he also said that he was delivering grandbabies of babies that he delivered. Oh boy. <laughs> that would make me feel old. That would make me feel very, very old. Yes. Yeah, so pediatrics, I mean, it takes a special person. You really got to love kids and almost be a kid whisperer. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's a special field and I really like being in it just because my colleagues are great, you know, everyone's super nice, everyone has families, everyone's really interested in the future of the country because, you know, <laughs> things uh, that affect our kids. So I feel like it's a, a group of people that I really enjoy working with and the population I really enjoy working with. So I'm very lucky to be where I am, I think. All right. So let's talk to people who are about to have a kid, let's say even their first kid. You want to get the nest ready, you know, so it's adequately prepared for the child. What are some things that you would recommend having on hand? Sure. Yeah. So from a pediatrician's point of view, I'm always very impressed because parents come in with all their equipment. They have done their homework online. They've read the blogs. And a lot of the big things are checked off. So back in the day, we would have to remind parents to buy a bassinet or a car seat. And that's not the case anymore, definitely. So the couple things that I have kind of noticed that some parents don't always have on hand, which are great to have on hand, would be Tylenol. That's one. A nasal suctioning device is definitely something that's very useful. And then a rectal thermometer. So Tylenol is super useful because for those parents that are more experienced out there, you definitely know that's something we're going to be running to time and again, whether it's for teething or for fevers or for bumps and bruises. So super useful. In the early ages, I would say definitely something you should talk to your pediatrician about before you give it for the first time. But that's something nice to have on hand. The other one would be the nasal suction. So a lot of babies do have a little bit of congestion as they come out and uh, is a thing that we deal with very commonly in the office. We get asked about a lot. So having something at home that can deal with a little bit of that congestion is very useful. And then the last thing would be a rectal thermometer. So we'll talk a little bit more about that, but uh, definitely good. It's a fever. Yes. Yeah. Um, something to measure a baby's temperature at home, for sure. Okay. Well, definitely uh, curious minds are going to want to know why rectal, but you're going to have to listen all the way through if you're that curious. When you said some kind of no suction device, I feel like when I had my first kid, there was only one type of no suction device. It was the big blue bulb. And I was always worried about, you know, squeezing it too hard and then sucking his brains out of his nostrils. Uh, now it seems like there are a whole bunch of other choices from like little electronic things to that little straw that you use to kind of manually suck stuff out. That's not sucker. Is there any one that you recommend just type wise over the others? Yeah. So what you're alluding to was a bulb suction. That's one that they usually give you on your way out of the hospital. It's, you know, very simple. It just works by manual suction. 
That one is great because the tip of it is usually pretty thick, so you cannot put it too far up the nose, or you can actually even use it for the mouth. It's a great tool to have, but the thing we have seen is that it's very hard to clean. It's hard to clean. It's hard to get everything out. There's no way to get in there. There's only one entrance and exit. You know, you'd probably be horrified if you cut those things open after months. (laughs) It's molded inside, 100%. So the one that I like is what you were also alluding to, a snot sucker. Um, There's a bunch of different brands out there, all of which I think are totally fine. That one, usually the tip is a little bit more fine. And then the suction you can also control on your own. So in terms of kind of getting some snot or congestion out, I think that one is probably my go-to is the snot sucker, some version of it. Yeah. Yeah. And then maybe I'm jumping ahead. The same company made the Windy, you know, the Dose Frida. And then they made the Windy, which is supposed to help release gas. That's trapped. Are you a fan of the Windy too? The Windy is a newer player on the scene. I would say for gas, I have a bunch of other things I reach to first. I have not personally had parents or patients have a lot of success with the Windy. Oh, really? The Nose Frida Snot Sucker, I do like. So the Nose Frida, yes. The Butt Frida, we're uh, we're waiting on no judgment yet. And then I'm just so curious to see what else they can Frida. (laughs) It's the truth. Everything. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to have a blog post, you know, 10 additional things you can do with your nose, Frida, when you no longer need it for your baby. Um, (laughs) They're also cool because you can wash them in the dishwasher and they have a filter so that when you're sucking out the snot from your baby's nose, you don't accidentally get a little snack. Exactly. So I think it's a great tool to have. All right. My time with you is going very fast, sadly. What I want to do is take a little break. When we come back, I want to talk about the first couple of nights. How do you know if you're doing a good job or a bad job? And then we'll also get into Billy Rubin and Jaundice. We'll be right back with Dr. Princeton Lee. This episode is sponsored by an innovative product that's made a big difference for parents and babies alike. Dr. Mom Butt Bomb. As a parent of four, I've had my fair share of battles with diaper rash, often resorting to thick, unpleasant pastes. I only recently discovered Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, and I was immediately impressed by its pleasant consistency and ease of application. This pediatric-approved skin protectant is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, making it perfect for your baby's sensitive skin. It's designed by a doctor who's also a mom, ensuring your little one gets the gentlest care. A small dab is all it takes to soothe and protect, avoiding the mess and hassle of traditional treatments. With ingredients like dimethicone and petrolatum, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb not only soothes, but also restores your baby's delicate skin. Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com, it's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, nothing comes between you and your baby. Not even diaper rash. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We're talking pediatrics with Dr. Princeton Lee. All right, so we bring the baby home. We have our rectal thermometer. We have some kind of nose suction device, and we have Tylenol, just in case we need it. Those are some of the things that people sometimes forget to include in their preparation kit. All right, baby's home. Either you have the baby at home or you brought the baby home. And now you're trying to figure out, there's a big learning curve. There's a lot to do. You got to feed it, change it, bathe it, 
and all that was kind of on autopilot before, it can be a little overwhelming sometimes. What are some signs that we're doing a good job or a bad job? So when I send families home from the hospital, I actually only give them a couple things that they need to do. Number one would be feeding. So we feed on a schedule and depending if we're breastfeeding or bottle feeding, there's kind of different things that we can look at for signs of success. And then the other thing we look at is the wet and dirty diapers. So kind of our outputs, and that is a good measure of how the feeding is going too. So in terms of things to look for, I would definitely say that if you're breastfeeding, we're looking for signs of satiety for baby. So the baby should be kind of relaxed, get that milk trunk, you know, sleep nap in if we can a couple hours. We used to call it the milk coma. Yes, milk coma. They were just pass out. It was so yummy to hold them in their milk coma. Yeah, so definitely a good sign. And then, you know, the wet and dirty diapers, definitely we give you kind of a day count, things to look for. And those are some good indicators that things are going well. But the other thing I would want to tell parents is, you know, it's not 100% up to them to decide how baby is doing. If you're worried at all, you should call your pediatrician and ask them. A good pediatrician or really any provider has a way to contact them 24-7. And pediatricians in particular are used to fielding worried parent calls in the middle of the night, on the weekends, holidays, anytime. So if anything comes up and you're worried outside of those common things of feeding and peeing, pooping, you should call your doctor. Are they supposed to poop every day at first? <laughs> Depends. Most babies will poop many, many times a day. And most babies, I tell parents, usually poop at least once a day. But there can be some variation. As long as you've had some normal poops in the hospital, the variation can be pretty broad, actually, even up to every other day. There's some babies that go even a week or two weeks, and it can be normal. But again, something you should ask your doctor. Yeah, uh, I'd be worried if it was you know, three or four days without poop for a newborn. Yeah, I just sometimes our parents will get nervous if the baby skips a day or two, get really anxious about it, but it can be normal. Like you said, if it goes on for a bit, ask. I 100% agree. Totally can be normal, but I would double check. All right. Well, that's a good start that baby's getting fed. When do you recommend the first bath? So the first bath, right now we're recommending after the umbilical cord falls off. Typically that happens about two to three weeks of life. And um, in our office and in many offices, we do give some handouts and some tips in order to have you bathe your newborn safely and also cover all our bases in terms of where to bathe, including behind the ears. But that is usually something that happens later on. A lot of parents ask early, but I say that, you know, feeding, peeing, pooping first, the bathing, you know, even if you don't get to it for a month, I wouldn't be worried at all. Do you see the babies always before they leave the hospital when it's a hospital birth? Yeah. Um, And what do you look for in them? Yeah, this will depend on the pediatrician. Not all pediatricians visit their babies in the hospital, but I do. We see babies at Santa Monica, UCLA, as well as at St. John's Providence. And we actually check in on the baby every single morning before they go home. When we're doing that kind of initial assessment and survey, it really is kind of head to toe. So we're looking for the head shape, the ears, are they placed correctly? You know, how do the eyes look? Is the tip of the nose in perfectly in the center? How's the suck going? And literally head to toe, we evaluate everything. It looks really quick as a parent sometimes, but really, you know, with our experience, 
we do a full survey and, you know, we're flagging anything for ourselves, things to follow up on, things that maybe needed to be looked at again. But I would say that the vast majority of babies totally check out, you know, babies are amazing that way. And how soon after they get home do you generally want to see them back at the office? So in my practice, it's about two days. Obviously, we do have to account for things like long weekends and holidays, but um, two to three days, sometimes sooner, sometimes later, kind of depending on what the setup is with the office, how the baby is doing, how experienced the parents are, but two to three days. What are you looking for there? I mean, if you just did that whole head-to-toe exam a couple of days earlier, what are you looking for a few days later? Well, the big thing to look for um, that you can't necessarily assess at home would be the weight. So the first couple visits are definitely focused around the weight and also focused around the feeding. So breastfeeding for new moms out there, they know it can be very, very tough. So, you know, we try to coach people along. We work with lactation consultants. We uh, assess how the baby's doing, you know, with kind of the anatomic compatibility. And then we kind of go from there. So in the first couple of weeks, actually, we have babies come in pretty often just to make sure everything's kind of flying. Does that change now during the pandemic or you still see them as often? Um, we see them pretty much about the same. We actually prioritize this age group. So the less than one and a half to two year age group, just to make sure that we get all these important first visits. Yeah. So important for sure. I would say this is a very crucial time for kids. All right, we promised a conversation on jaundice and bilirubin. Let's jump into that. What is jaundice? Jaundice is a yellowing of the eyes or the skin, and it's related to high levels of bilirubin. Bilirubin itself is a breakdown product of red blood cells. That's totally normal. Usually it's peed and pooped out, even by us, as adults, older folks. It's also broken down a little bit in the skin So in newborns, jaundice happens as kind of a matter of course. It can happen related to breastfeeding. It can happen related to breast milk or just physiologically, normally. As part of the normal process of life, we're breaking down red blood cells? Yeah. Your red blood cells live about three months and then they get recycled. So you're a new person. (laughs) But I do yoga. Do they live three and a half months? (laughs) <laughs> no? Okay. Yeah, I think they probably do. <laughs> I don't do yoga anyway. I do yogurt. I do frozen yogurt. Anyway, three times a week for a long time. So the bilirubin is the amount of broken down red blood cells in the blood? The bilirubin is a product of the red blood cell breakdown. Oh, a bunch of stuff that the body kind of recycles, and bilirubin is one of those things. Bilirubin sort of fun to say. It sounds like my next door neighbor's kid. Hey, bilirubin. No. I wonder what they call it then. Um, It actually is very interesting because it's the same thing that happens in bruising. So they actually have different forms of bilirubin for every color of bruise that you get. So when you get a bruise and it changes purple, green, all those colors, there's a form of bilirubin that causes those different bruise colors. (laughs) No kidding. So when a kid's born jaundice, uh, yellowing, then that's a sign that they have a lot of breakdown of red blood cells or they have a lot of byproduct of breakdown of red blood cells? Yeah, so it's a sign that they have higher levels of this. And, you know, the big issue in the end is that this bilirubin can actually enter through the bloodstream, the brain of babies, and can deposit there and cause serious problems, developmental delays, as well as seizures. 
So it's very, very serious that we monitor it and make sure it doesn't get too high. Like I said, most cases it's totally normal and we just kind of watch it slow down, the breakdown and in terms of the level. But there are cases where we need to watch it more closely and sometimes even do some special treatment for it. What kind of treatments are there? So there's a couple mainstays. Number one would be making sure the baby is fed. And this sounds very simple, but again, as any breastfeeding mother knows, it's not necessarily a matter of course that it happens. So there are some times where we ask that moms and families give a little bit more formula and that can help the baby pee and poop it out like we talked about earlier. The other treatment is something called phototherapy, which is a special kind of light therapy that breaks down the bilirubin in the skin in a way that the babies can again excrete it, pee or poop it out. So that's a little kind of light box or a blanket that's lit, which is really cool, or some overhead lights. And that's what we call phototherapy in the hospital. Would the sun do the same thing? So it's interesting that you ask that. <laughs> Back in the day, we actually found out about phototherapy being useful because the nuns who used to take care of babies in the nursery would notice that the babies closest to the window would do better. Oh, wow. You're totally right. It would do the same thing, but the phototherapy in the hospital has a special wavelength that breaks down the bilirubin the most efficiently. So when you're out in the sun, you don't get as much of that. I see. So just to recap, jaundice is when they look yellowish. The cause of it is elevated bilirubin, which is a byproduct of red blood cell breakdown. The concern is if the bilirubin gets high enough, it can cause issues at the brain like seizures. And sometimes if the level's not that high, you just leave it alone. Sometimes phototherapy or other types of therapy that are feeding and phototherapy to try to um, get the levels down. Is it possible that you take the baby home and they don't have jaundice and then they develop it once you're home? It's possible, but rare. And typically those cases are not worrisome. Typically the cases that we worry about are ones where we flagged it in the hospital because almost every hospital in the country now will do a bilirubin check before you go home. And then we are kind of following it closely. And there are some babies that need to return for special treatment. It's rare to have high and concerning levels that pop out of nowhere after you go home from the hospital. How common is jaundice in babies? Extremely common, yeah. I would say that a good half of the babies we see have some jaundice level that we need to follow either mentally for the pediatrician or like actually follow with lab testing or, you know, do some treatment in the hospital. But I would say the majority of babies don't have any long-term issues with it. And by long-term, I mean anything we need to do in the first couple of weeks of life. I, I have two more questions about jaundice and we'll move on to fevers. But uh, one is what's the scale? What's the range of bilirubin in the blood and what's sort of normal versus elevated versus concerning? So that's a very complicated question. Oh. <laughs> um, there have been pediatricians whose entire careers are devoted to answering that question. And the reason why is unlike adults where the value is pretty much just set in stone and you can kind of read it on your lab report for babies, the value that is acceptable in terms of what's high or low actually changes day by day and also varies based off of gestational age. So if you were born preterm, um, there's kind of different values. We follow term different values. And also the risk levels depend on the risk factors. And there are some things that we pick out, for example, East Asian race is one, a sibling who had jaundice or phototherapy is one, 
a blood type mismatch between mom and baby is one. There are a bunch of things we kind of pick out and all these things together produce a number that we kind of worry or don't worry about. Um, but it's a very complicated question. Wow. Okay. My, my other question was going to be, and maybe this is even more complicated, I don't know. Can you kind of gauge by looking at the skin tone where they are on that scale? So again, an amazing question. The answer to that is back in the day, and they still do this in some countries, you know, the primary assessment for bilirubin or jaundice used to be visual. So we used to think that jaundice kind of proceeds from the, the, eye, the whites of the eyes to the face and then down the body. So a baby with jaundice down to the level of the belly button was more jaundice, quote unquote, than a baby with just jaundice in the face. However, they did these big studies looking at physicians who thought they were really good at assessing babies' color levels and the actual lab values, and they didn't find a correlation. So right now- you got to do the test. (laughs) Right now we say the test is best until we come up with a good way of assessing it just from the skin tone, which actually some people are developing apps and cameras and things like that, but uh, forthcoming. You just, hey Siri, how much belly ribbon does my kid have? (laughs) Exactly, one day. And she'll be smart enough to figure out if it's a normal number or not, too. (laughs) All right. When we come back, we're going to talk about fevers. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. (laughs) Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We're talking pediatrics with Dr. Princeton Lee. And we've sort of got you ready for the first days at home with the newborn. So tips, number one, what to have around, and two, what to expect in terms of gauging whether the baby's eating well and satisfied or not. Then we talked about a pretty common condition in newborns called jaundice and the bilirubin that causes it. Now we're going to talk about something else that's really common in babies. And sometimes it's not a big deal, and sometimes it is. So it can be a little tricky, and that is fever. All right, so first of all, Let's talk to Dr. Lee about what is normal for newborns and does it change over time? I know that unfortunately this year I got COVID, a bad, bad case of COVID. And one of the things that happened was my fever shot up to 104. And I don't remember that happening since I was like three years old. And it was god awful. Thankfully, nobody in my office, none of our patients, none of my coworkers got COVID, and nobody in my family got COVID, which I was more grateful for than anything else. Those are all the people I was terrified for. But only one person around me in my bubble has antibodies, and that is my nine-year-old son. And what happened with him was, you know, as soon as I didn't feel right, I followed the CDC guidelines, I think to a T. I went into my own isolation room. We ordered tons of Clorox. Well, you could still get them at that point. I used my own isolated bathroom. We're fortunate enough to have enough that I can have my own. I did my laundry all by myself. I was wiping down doorknobs and everything constantly. My little guy, he's the fourth of four, and he would knock on the door and he'd say, Daddy, I hear you coughing, so I made your favorite tea. Can I bring it in? And I was like, no. (laughs) You're so sweet and kind. I was so touched. He was so concerned about me. So just leave it at the door and I'll come get it soon, little buddy. I love you. And then my stomach was bothering me, so he found out about it. And he knocks at the door. Daddy, I know your tummy's bothering you, so I need you some rice. 
can I bring it in? And I was like, no, don't come in here. It's not safe for you, but you're so yummy, delicious. I really appreciate you for making this rice. And I'd go later and get it. Anyway, when my fever spiked up to 104, I just was miserable. I could, my no temperature regulation, I was aching and stiff all over. I was just so miserable. I took a mega dose of Tylenol and I felt the fever break. I started sweating bullets and I just finally felt like a normal temperature and the ache started to dull a little bit. I laid down in bed and I literally passed out. I woke up. I have no idea how much later it was. I woke up and my little guy was snuggled in bed with me. That is so, so sweet. He couldn't stay away. So as a thank you, I gave him some antibodies. (laughs) (laughs) And and that's that. So anyway, I don't want to get too far off topic. We're talking about fever. I got to relive my childhood by having 104 fever. What's normal for little kids? So first of all, I think you hit on something that's super important is most adults when they get sick, don't get febrile or don't get fevers that get that high. And when you do get it, you feel it again. And like you said, right, that's something that happens when you're a kid and you kind of forget about it um, if you're healthy for most of your adult life. But it's super bothersome to infants and to children. So definitely something that we want to manage, even apart from, you know, what is kind of causing it, which is also important. Um, fever as a symptom is super disturbing. <laughs> um, yes. But the question being, what's the definition of fever? Okay. Uh, so the definition is actually 38 degrees Celsius or 100.4, 100.4 Fahrenheit. And the best way in the newborn, which is kind of the age group we're focusing on, is actually rectally. So a rectal temperature of greater than 38 or 100.4 is our definition of fever. And that actually doesn't change as we get older. Maybe our kind of worry level changes with older kids or kids with special needs, but that is the gold standard. 98.6 you hear is normal. That's correct. So there's wiggle room because 99.6 and even a little higher, you're saying it's not really considered off the chart yet. That's correct. So The way that they defined a fever, you know, if we're being a little bit academic, is they actually looked at normal distribution of body temperatures, and they took two standard distributions. So I think that's 95% of people will fall less than 100.4. So that's how we kind of define normal. And then if you're above that, that means you're in this abnormally high temperature. Yeah. Okay. And why rectal? Why is that? I mean, with the newfangled thermometers that we have, now we have like radar gun thermometer, touchless, beeping, forehead, ear. Yeah. So there are a bunch of different ways to measure temperature. They're all not perfect, but in reality, what we're trying to measure is the core temperature and the rectal for various reasons is the closest thing we can get to a core temperature. What I would say for those at home is that the other ways of measuring temperatures are either imprecise. So if you look at a forehead scanner, the stats look great, but you do have to do it in this very kind of specific way to get a good reading, or they underestimate the true temperature. So if you take Mm -hmm. a temperature under the tongue or in the armpit, usually it's a little bit less than what you would get when you do a rectal temperature, which is why we kind of use that one as our gold standard. Is it uncomfortable for the babies? Um, I feel like it's probably more uncomfortable for the parents. For the adults? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the baby won't remember anything, obviously. And uh, you only have to insert the tip of the thermometer. Please don't go, you know, digging around there. Just that metal tip 
you know, maybe a half inch, quarter inch even. So it's pretty quick. You have to leave it in there until your device beeps or it gives you some recognition that it's reading. But uh, it's something that parents should feel comfortable doing after a while. And that's kind of the number we're looking for when you call and ask and we're talking about baby's temperature. Do you lubricate them? Yeah, so you can put a little bit of lubricant if you have it or even uh, just Vaseline. That Vaseline. Can work as well. Yeah. So when you do get a fever over 100.4, when it's under 100.4, does it just mean don't worry at all? So some of those, you know, creeping up temperatures can be signs, right? Experienced parents will know like, oh, well, the thermometer is reading 99.9, but I think the next time I take it in 10 minutes, it's going to get to 101. So it's not something to be ignored necessarily, but specifically in the newborn age group, I would say it is important and to split hairs about the numbers because once we do breach that 100.4 barrier, then we are really talking about a different kind of workup, evaluation, and thought process about the baby and whether or not he or she is sick. There is this thought, if I'm putting on my holistic cap, there's this thought that when the body elevates the temperature, it is trying to accomplish a goal, maybe to kill microorganisms or some other goal that is this underlying source of what's making you sick. And that although it makes them uncomfortable, if we left the fever a little bit longer, then perhaps the body would achieve its goal faster. I'm curious about your thoughts on that. I'm putting you on the spot. Yeah. So that's a great thought process. And that's kind of the evolutionary defense mechanism that the human body has developed in order to beat back infections, right? There is this kind of nice comfy temperature that humans and a lot of bacteria and viruses share. But I would say, you know, in the era of modern medicine, we have other things we can do to not only control the temperature, but, you know, control and rein in dangerous infectious diseases, which would obviously be the most common cause of a higher temperature. So while that thought is definitely valid, I think because we're at where we're at in terms of medicine and technology, we do have better ways to treat infection. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but would you, if a child had a low-grade fever, some parents would just want to leave it longer and see if it, it resolves on its own. Is that something you'd be comfortable with, or do you always want to bring it down? 100%. So to me, controlling a fever is not about bringing the temperature down to help the child do something in terms of the illness. To me, it's actually just about making the kiddo comfortable. Comfort, comfort yeah. yeah. Exactly. So, you know, there's a lot of cases where I get a call and mom or dad is saying, well, little Johnny is running around and the temperature is 102, but he seems unaffected. Then I say, let him run around, you know, watch the fever, obviously, and make sure it doesn't go crazy. doesn't go for too long or too high. But if Johnny's comfortable, I'm comfortable. But most of the times, like you felt, it'll make you feel so under the weather, so out of it. As the temperature curve drops, the, you know, as a parent, you'll see that the kiddo is getting down, super tired, just wants to knock out. And that's kind of where I advise the anti-fever medications, just so we can get through our day or get through our night. Yeah. Are there other things besides medication that you can use to treat fever at home? Yeah, of course. So, you know, um, some of the old school methods are still very valid. Um, you can do some ice packs. So specifically around the areas where blood is close to the surface of the skin. So in the armpits or even in the neck or in the wrists on the forehead, that can be very helpful. Some parents like doing that, but more whole body, like um, a cool bath that can be very helpful. And then obviously, you know, you can turn the temperature down in the house, but some of the uh, old ways are just as good, especially if it makes the kiddo comfortable. That's the goal there. 
And then what are some of the causes of fever? I know you mentioned infection. Are there other things that cause fever? Yeah. So, you know, one other big category is heat (laughs) related. Yeah. So, you know, when you were telling that story up front about taking your new baby out, I actually thought it was going to be like a temperature or a sun exposure story. I was waiting to hear what ending was. But, you know, temperature, you know, just ambient temperature can affect babies, especially in terms of how they regulate their internal thermometers. So there can be external reasons to get fevers. Yeah. I would say aside from infections and kind of external sources, those would be between those two, that's covers most of your bases. Most of it. So as a general rule, I know it's always going to be a case by case basis, but when am I okay to just give some Tylenol or use some cooling packs or cool bath and treat the baby at home? And when is it like, oh, we should call a pediatrician? I would say that you should always call the pediatrician between birth and about two to three months of life. So there are very few kind of hard and fast rules and medicine in general and pediatrics in particular. But I would say that age group would be one where I would say definitely call your doctor before you do anything at home. After that... For any fever over 100.4? Or any fever over 100.4. Specifically because at that age, they can't really tell you what's wrong. You know, mm-hmm. you as a parent may still be getting used to their rhythms and cycles, right? You may be still adjusting to all the stuff we talked about before, the feeding, the peeing and pooping. So during that time, it's very hard to tell when babies are sick. A fever has a much higher chance at that age group of showing something concerning like a urinary tract infection or, you know, an infection in the lungs or the bloodstream, something dangerous. So we are a lot more aggressive at that age group in terms of workup and treatment because we're trying to cover that increased percentage of babies who are sick. Once you're, you know, over three months, we think that due to a maturing immune system, due to vaccinations, due to, you know, antibodies that are passed on in the breast milk, that rate of serious infection is much, much lower. And it kind of follows a time period. We don't really know exactly what date, and it is kind of splitting hairs, right? If you're like two months and 29 days, is that different than if you're three months and one day? Not really, but that's kind of how they've studied it. So that's where our kind of time frames come from. If fever goes high, aside from the underlying cause, will the heat itself, will the elevated temperature itself eventually cause damage? That is a very good question. We used to think that there was brain damage, right? That's what everyone's worried about. If you let a temperature get too high, right, and stay there for too long. The more recent data shows that the internal thermometer has a limit to it, and your body can only crank up the temperature so high And that level, which is usually around 104, maybe 105, is typically all the body can do. And that is not a level that's dangerous for the brain. But the other reason we talked about the heat from outside, right? If you're running marathon or if you're outside without shade for a long time or whatever, that external heat can drive your temperature up where it causes brain damage. So that's kind of the difference between a fever from infection internally versus externally. External sources. Yeah. Well, I hope that everybody listening feels much better informed. I do. Uh, It's a little too late for me, but I do. (laughs) And I really appreciate your sharing. I mean, this is all going to be much more practical for you very soon. 
since yes. uh, you'll have your own little human child oh, in God. the house. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Forthcoming, upcoming. I don't know how it works with kids. Can you be your own kid's pediatrician? It is not a good idea, and I do not. <laughs> I'm not going to do that at all. You don't yeah. plan on it. Yeah. yeah. I'm my kid's chiropractor, but they just like literally come sit in my lab and they know I'm going to feel around and see what's going on with their little spines. Mm -hmm. And if something's off, we're going to adjust it. Well, I really am grateful for you joining the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. This is your first appearance, hopefully, of several. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This was great. My pleasure. And at home, thanks for listening to us. You know, I do want to say one thing. I've been getting a lot of comments in the app. You can go read them too, but I'm really grateful for them. Usually it's haters that leave comments in the apps and I've been feeling a lot of love there. So I really appreciate you. Uh, go visit the app and leave us a comment. I read every single one. And then uh, if you like this type of material, visit us online at informedpregnancy.com. This episode is sponsored by an innovative product that's made a big difference for parents and babies alike, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb. As a parent of four, I've had my fair share of battles with diaper rash, often resorting to thick, unpleasant pastes. I only recently discovered Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, and I was immediately impressed by its pleasant consistency and ease of application. This pediatric-approved skin protectant is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, making it perfect for your baby's sensitive skin. It's designed by a doctor who's also a mom, ensuring your little one gets the gentlest care. A small dab is all it takes to soothe and protect, avoiding the mess and hassle of traditional treatments. With ingredients like dimethicone and petrolatum, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb not only soothes, but also restores your baby's delicate skin. Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com, it's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, nothing comes between you and your baby. Not even diaper rash.